Welcome to The Partial Historians. We explore all the details of ancient Rome. Everything from the political scandals, the love affairs, the battles waged, and when citizens turn against each other. I'm Dr. Rad. And I'm Dr. G. We consider Rome as the Romans saw it, by reading different authors from the ancient past and comparing their stories. Join us as we trace the journey of Rome from the founding of the city. Welcome to another episode of The Partial Historians. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Rad. And I'm Dr. G. Looking very glamorous with a sort of almost iridescent eyeliner today. Thank you. I I crunched up beetle shells myself. (laughs) How very antiquity of you. I feel very Egyptian. Thank you. I like it. I like it. So we are an ancient Roman history podcast. We're delving through the Roman Republic at this point in time, aren't we, Dr. G? We are. We've been tracing Rome's history from its foundation. And here we are in a roundabout 436 BCE. Well, you just hold on to your horses, Missy, because I have a little bit more to say about 437, I'm afraid. <gasps> I know. So let's do a little bit of a recap of our last Wasn't episode. that the year where Tolomnius got stabbed in the groin? Was it? <laughs> <laughs> this is the question that we're asking. We ask the big questions on the partial historians. Was a man stabbed in the groin? I feel, I feel like there was a story about that. <laughs> oh, no, there definitely was. But a uh, question of when it happened, I suppose. Oh, yes. yes. And if, indeed. Yeah, exactly. So what we were dealing with was Rome has been, as usual, in conflict with some neighbouring areas. That's what was happening in 437. They're a bully. They don't know how to get along with anybody. Well, to be fair, to be fair... This whole affair that we've been dealing with recently was sparked by someone else's actions and they were just responding in kind with a stab to the groin. So what happened was we have one of their colonies, Fidene, which had decided to treacherously switch sides. I mean, <laughs> can you imagine not wanting to be part of Rome? Uh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So they had changed their allegiances over to the Etruscans. Clever move. Yeah, absolutely. Who are still, you know, something of a force in the north in particular. And this led to a battle in which the, actually not the Roman commander. (laughs) I was going to say the Roman commander, but actually not the dictator, but a young man by the name of Cossus. Who becomes super famous for killing Tolumnius on the field of battle. Yes, exactly. So famous that he's compared to Romulus himself. Yes, exactly. So this guy's a big deal. We did raise some questions last time about exactly when the slaying of the Etruscan king Tolumnius actually happened. We're in a very hazy period of yeah. Roman history in terms of the chronology, as it were. And I think this is going to not be cleared up for another 10 years or so. Yeah, basically, we have accounts that place it in 437, but certainly there are questions raised about maybe it happened in 426, because this is a very on-again, off-again kind of issue that the Romans have. (laughs) Can't hold on to allies. Who knew? (laughs) Yeah. So because there is this on-again, off-again nature, it's possible that the exact chronology is a bit confused. And I must admit, I was pretty convinced by the idea that Tolumnius, as the king and therefore the leader of these Etruscan forces that the Romans were fighting, I was kind of convinced by the idea that it would make sense for him to be killed in the final year of the conflict and that to be like a signal of, right, you're done, you're over, you're out, rather than in the very first year. But nonetheless... It, it does crop up in 437. Tragedies happen. And the Etruscans have 12 kings, so maybe they can find another one from somewhere else to die later. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, so we've got this whole idea of Cossus managing to defeat Tolumnius in battle, mano a mano, and being able to strip him of his spoils, so his armour, his weapons, that kind of jazz, you know. And then getting to take part in this very special dedication ceremony where he dedicates the spolia opima 
which is all that stuff I just All mentioned. of the stuff he's nicked off the guy's body. Yeah, yeah. exactly. In the Temple of Jupiter Ferratrius, mm. which as you highlighted, it's a very, very special thing to do. It is. Super special and not many people do it. Yeah. The only person to do it before Cossus was apparently Romulus, which is saying something because as we've highlighted, he's probably fictional. <laughs> it was a long time ago and nobody's sure anymore if he was real. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, before we move on into the next year, I wanted to highlight a particular passage of Livy, which is connected to these events. So last episode, we talked about what the scholars think about this event and the potential haziness around the reporting of it. And I thought, I'm actually going to read out this entire passage of Livy. It's a very controversial passage. (laughs) And so I think it bears repeating in full. So you ready? Oh, yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, let's do it. So Livy himself actually acknowledged that there was debate over exactly what happened Good man, he's done his research. He kind of has, okay? And I think you're going to be very excited when you find out exactly how he's done his research. So, (coughs) put on my Livy voice. Following all previous historians, because of course we all know the Romans are British, (laughs) I have stated that Aulus Cornelius Cossus was a military tribune when he brought the second spoils of honour to the temple of Jupiter Ferratrius. But besides that, Only those are properly held to be spoils of honour, which one commander takes from another commander, and that we know no commander but him, under whose auspices the war is waged. The very words inscribed upon the spoils disprove their account and mine, and show that it was as consul that Cossus captured them. This makes sense, actually. It's like, it's very bizarre to have a a moment where you're like, ah, an enemy commander has killed another enemy commander in battle. And you're like, and his name's Cossus and he's not on the consular list for this year. And you're like, oh, awkward. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So that's exactly it. He's highlighting that, hang on a second, there was a dictator and Cossus actually wasn't the commander of this whole thing. He's just some dude. Yeah. Okay. Now this is the part where you're going to get really excited. So, okay, here we go. Having heard from the lips of Augustus Caesar, the founder or renewer of all the temples, that he had entered the shrine of Jupiter Ferratrius, which he repaired when it had crumbled with age, and had himself read the inscription on the linen breastplate, I have thought it would be almost sacrilege to rob Cossus of such a witness to his spoils as Caesar the restorer of that very temple. Where the error in regard to this matter lies, in consequence of which such ancient annals and also the book of the magistrates written on linen and deposited in the temple of Manita, which Lysicinius Mecach, or Mesa if you prefer, <laughs> cites from time to time as his authority, only gives Aulus Cornelius Cossus as consul with Titus Quintius Poinus seven years later, is a matter on which everybody is entitled to his opinion. For there is this further reason why so famous a battle could not be transferred to the later year, that the consulship of Cossus fell within a period of about three years when there were no wars, owing to a pestilence and dearth of crops, so that certain annals, as though death registers offer nothing but the names of the consuls. The third year after Cossus's consulship saw him military tribune with consular powers, and in the same year he was master of the horse, in which office he fought another famous cavalry engagement. Here is freedom for conjecture, but in my opinion it is idle, For one may brush aside all theories when the man who fought the battle, after placing the newly won spoils in their sacred resting place, testified in the presence of Jupiter himself, to whom he had vowed them, and of Romulus, witnesses not to be held lightly by a forger, that he was Aulus Cornelius Cossus, consul, microphone. 
I added that last Wow. <laughs> All right. So let's unpack this a little yeah, bit. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. There is a lot going on, but this is actually probably one of the most controversial passages of Livy. Oh, no. It's why he's done his best work. How can this be controversial? He's but gone that's and, exactly He's it. gone and talked to people and he's looked at some evidence and, you know, some reliable sources. Nobody's going to distrust Augustus. Surely not. Well, it's just so fascinating because he is highlighting all the things we've highlighted that there is so much confusion in this period. And it's partly because we've got some similar names that keep coming up in a very short period of time. And there do seem to be like multiple battles, which maybe events from those battles have been slightly confused. His sources, these unfortunately basically non-existent earlier records, which we only now have like very tiny yeah, references to. Yeah, like he's working on like scholars that... We don't have access to ourselves, like Licinius yeah. Mesa, we don't have a lot of. And he's going to consular lists, so he's going to Fasti. Yeah. They're a little bit more reliable, but they're also a bit gappy as yeah. well, yeah. depending on what the time period is. I like this idea that there's uh, pestilence may be one of the things that needs to be kept in mind. Absolutely. I haven't come across any pestilence in the last few years, but I'm wondering I'm if about to, some are yeah. about to hit us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think that we can we can feel the plague. <laughs> Our skin's a bit itchy. But definitely I love this questioning, but also, I mean the reference to Augustus. <laughs> yeah, well, I, okay. So Augustus can't have been the only person who went into that shrine. It's not like he by hand himself is restoring <laughs> the temple. Like that's just not even on. But he might be one of the few people who had entered into the interior shrine itself in a very long time. Mm. So part of what happens with temples and structures like this is that you do have an interior chamber for the most sacred things, which is under the purview of whichever priesthood is looking after that particular temple. Yes. So, but their job is not to go in there and sort of like look at that stuff and hang out. It's just (laughs) to make sure that things are intact. So they're not really going to be spending a lot of time necessarily studying the items that are in their like sort of shrinal archive, as it were. Yeah. That's not necessarily part of their job. So it's quite possible that that has been maintained, but needed to be opened yes. as part of the restoration process to make sure everything's okay. And yep. Augustus might have wanted to have been part of that. It's plausible that he would have a sneak peek in there because he's that kind of guy. He sticks his nose into everywhere where it doesn't belong. And Checks out Alexander's grave. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's yeah. like, I just need to see Alexander for myself. And everyone's <laughs> like, that's gross. He's been dead for ages. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, okay. I was intrigued by this at first because it's unusual for any ancient historian to go into this kind of detail about their source material and their process. It's so, significant depth. Yeah, it is It is really interesting. But obviously the reference to Augustus, well, that throws a whole other spin on things, Dr. G. And I was very fortunate. What do you mean? <laughs> well, I'm not going to say that he's a liar, but he's a liar. Oh. <laughs> so, no. The shock. Augustus has been known to, you know, spinner through things. He's a bit of a master manipulator. You know, I think this of him. But there's also. I know you think this of him. <laughs> I do think this of him. Um, there is also that element which Livy is quite right to point out that if this breastplate is actually there and Cossus did actually dedicate this breastplate, swearing that he was consul to Jupiter. I mean, that's a big lie to tell, dude. So there are lots of different things going on here. I mean, we could just check by opening up the shrine and having a look for ourselves. (laughs) Patrons, get onto it. We need some money. I need an Indiana Jones hat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I was very fortunate to stumble across this really in-depth article, which went through... So many layers of this one passage. So it's by Dylan Saylor. It's called Dirty Linen Fabrication and the Authorities of Living Augustus, which I think is an amazing (laughs) title. Dirty Linen. I know, which which is obviously like a reference to the fact that we're dealing with a linen breastplate. We're also dealing with potentially this source called the linen rolls. I'll be honest, a linen breastplate at first blush doesn't sound like it's going to be much use for defensive purposes. Well, look, it's no wonder he got stabbed through the coin. Yeah, it answers a lot of questions. Um, but he goes into heaps of detail. Now, I'm not going to go through all of this, this very amazing academic article, but there were some interesting elements which he highlighted, which I thought bear mentioning. Mm-hmm. So 
His point of view is that the way that Livy very carefully records this passage and what happens is that he is kind of linking the evidence that Augustus has offered to him with some earlier events from Roman history that he's already reported on, which involve supernatural elements coming into play, okay? And like possible embellishment or aspects of like fabrication and that kind of thing. So for example, when the King Numa would go for a stroll with a goddess. Yeah, very plausible. Definitely happened. Yeah, exactly. Those sorts of things where it's like... Did Augustus look into that archive as well? (laughs) Like, she's real. They found her in the forest by self. Exactly, exactly. Um, And there also have been questions raised about when Livy put this passage in. Like, did did he originally publish it with this passage or was it a later edition because he spoke to Augustus, those sorts of things. I wonder if it, yeah, it's the kind of thing where it's like Augustus is like, oi, Livy, come here. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Let me tell you a thing about a breastplate. (laughs) Well, second edition, you'll you'll need to do some reworking. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So there's a bit of debate about that. To be honest, I kind of agree with Sailor in that it actually doesn't really matter for what I'm about to say next. This is more about contextualizing this particular event. It would seem that at around the time that Livy is writing this passage, we're talking about, you know, sort of like 27 to 25 BC. Oh, a very prime political time for Augustus. Isn't it just? Do you want to tell us about it, Dr. G? <laughs> so 27 is the traditional year in which we have the moment where we it's called like the settlement. Yes. Uh, and there's this kind of agreement reached that, Augustus will get this additional title. This is the moment he becomes Augustus. Mm. And the the way that the power will be divvied up is kind of resolved after this sort of lengthy tail period after the end of the civil wars, where mm. it's not really clear what, what Augustus' position really is. And they need to sort of firm up something because it's clear that whatever has happened as a consequence of the civil war, Rome is now different mm. and its politics functions differently. And they need to figure out how to make that formalized so they can keep going. Yes. And the settlement's partly about that. And so it's a bit of a an honor gesture to Augustus. Um, but he's also, you know, gotten to this position because he's killed so many of his enemies. Mm. Um, so who's left? <laughs> People on his side, potentially. Yeah. So it's this interesting moment for Rome where it's consciously shifting. Mm. And it seems that Augustus is also shaping that shift. Oh, yeah. So he's the one who... Just a minute, <laughs> Master manipulator, perhaps, mm. or political strategist uh, with no enemies left on the floor. So, you know, the last chess player remaining. I not, think they not think just the same thing. <laughs> not beaten by a teenager uh, for those yeah. following chess controversies. But Augustus is the kind of the only one left, the clear leader. And he has this moment where they also allow him to choose the name that he's going to take for himself. Mm. And they did move him out Romulus for a bit, didn't they? They did. And he did, you know, weigh up the pros and cons with like being Romulus as his like honorific title and was like, and then decided maybe that was a little bit too on the nose (laughs) um, and decided he wanted something that was just his. Yes. But there is a sense in which Augustus is super interested in the history of Rome and how he fits into it. So it's not at all surprising that he's also very interested in Cossus because Cossus is the next figure in Roman history that has this callback to Romulus. Mm. And it's like somewhere in there, Augustus is going to want to sort of line himself up with all of the significant figures that have come before. Yeah, definitely. And that's why he's doing things like restoring temples. Like it's, you know, hearkening back. Because Romulus supposedly is the person who founded this temple. Oh, yes. So, you know, it's all these kinds of connections. (laughs) But if we put it in a bit of context um, of what specifically was happening just before this. So in 29 BCE, there was a triumph that was allowed to be held. (laughs) because I'm going to say aloud, because Augustus is around at this point in time. Uh, I'll permit it. I'll permit it. By Marcus Licinius Crassus. No, not the famous one. I mean, like not the, like, the not really the money-grubbing famous. Crassus. Yeah, but, uh... not the one that I think is the most famous one, because he fought Spartacus. <laughs> Always a reference to Spartacus. But anyway, so this guy, he had been consul in the previous year. He was now serving as a proconsul. And in that capacity... He ended up fighting people called the Bastane. Mm. And during that battle, he killed and stripped the chieftain Deldo. Uh, which sounds like a rude word, but it's not. Say, did you just say 
the chieftain no. dildo no, 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 no. of the bastone. Like, like where, where's dildo? He's the guy where, wearing, where is dildo? Yeah, he's the guy wearing the red and white stripes. Um, yeah, so he defeated this guy. And for this reason, not only does he get a triumph, but there's also granted to him the right to deposit the spoils in the temple of Jupiter Veratrius. Awkward. I can only imagine Augustus being slightly jealous slash angry about that. Well, this is the kind of the context that we need to keep in mind. Obviously, he's not actually, he's not Augustus yet. He is by the time that Livy is writing, but he's just come off having his own triumph, which is obviously very impressive, but... It's really, essentially, no matter how much he tries to spin it or manipulate it to appear otherwise, a civil war that he has been fighting. Yeah, but he succeeded in the civil war. He did, but let's face it. That's a triumph. I'm not saying it's not a triumph. (laughs) I'm not saying it's not a triumph. I'm just saying it's over. Okay, yes, technically Cleopatra, but also Mark Antony. It's awkward. That's what it is. It's awkward. It's all shades of awkward. (laughs) Okay, so there's this whole thing going on here that we have to sort of, you know, keep in mind as well. Okay, so that's happening. Then, on top of that, if we return to how Livy records this particular issue, it is a bit unclear exactly how Livy feels about Augustus Mm. in his work. Certainly, I think we've mentioned previously that he's obviously writing in this very interesting time period where he's literally writing as Rome is changing dramatically. How much he appreciated it at the time, exactly. Obviously, he didn't have a crystal ball to know like where this is all heading. <laughs> yeah, but he might be cognizant enough to be like, we're living in interesting times. I think that's certainly <laughs> true. Like, he might not have gone like, oh, there's going to be an empire for the next 500 years, you know, with emperors and whatnot. But certainly, I think I think people appreciated how significant Augustus was. It's a bit unclear about exactly where he stands. Now, you could read that passage as being Augustus told Livy to do something, and he did it. Mm. <laughs> but it's He might not... have just been really impressed. But the thing is, it's interesting, given that... By the time he's writing this, Augustus is just getting more and more powerful. He doesn't hand over authority unquestioningly to Augustus's events. He phrases it very carefully. And that's what I think is really interesting. He technically leaves the choice up to the reader, but he doesn't take himself like out of the accounts. He kind of walks you through the fact that, okay, so this is my way of doing things. I've looked, you know, I've considered the sources. I've looked at the, you know, the older source material. This is what I've found. These are the issues. However, this is the version that Augustus says. <laughs> Make of that what you will, dear reader. <laughs> yeah, and the way that he phrases it, that idea of it being sacrilege, you know, like this idea of sacrilege, like not to report this and to include it. In Sailor's opinion, this is somewhat connecting this episode to those episodes which he had talked about previously, like kings going out with goddesses and having a right old time in the forest, where Livy reports these things, but there's always that notion of, look, if you're open to accepting there's like a certain like supernatural aspect or like embellishment going on here, cool. But I'm just signaling to you that... I'm not sure I entirely buy into this. There's clearly an agenda here. And he he can buy into that agenda if he sees it as being something like for the public good or, you know, like there's a purpose there. Hmm. But I don't know if he feels that Augustus falls into that category. And so by hinting at the fact that Augustus's version isn't entirely true he's kind of going i clock you augustus i see what you're i don't think do. he i don't think he said it's not entirely true he said i'll leave it up to the reader that's a very that's a fine <laughs> distinction <laughs> i'm just saying this is what sailor this is what sailor is saying okay he's saying that by hinting at the fact that there's like a certain embellishment potentially going on here livy is subtly very subtly indicating i am not part of the rabble okay and my readers potentially like i've opened the door for them to also not be part of this rabble who are being easily fooled 
by these stories that you're feeding us to show how powerful you are and promote your version of things and establish that dynamic with us. Uh uh-uh. uh. None of my turn. Look, I think you might be reading a little bit too far across right. it at this point in time. I'm going to give Livy props for <laughs> being a good historian in this moment because yeah. he's doing his due diligence in both reporting the facts as far as he understands them. He's like, these are the pieces of evidence I've been able to encounter. Yeah. So these things have been witnessed yeah. and we can say something about them. And he's also doing his due diligence in, in reporting the stories that people tell about these things. Absolutely. Because yes. historians are well aware that it's not just what may or may not have happened and what we can absolutely establish. It's also about how people talk about them and how they feel about them. Definitely. And so being able to position Augustus's piece of storytelling in there is useful Mm. because it allows him to highlight that there are some, you know, contemporary perspectives on this situation, which might very well be of interest to you and also couch it in like, but here's everything else you need to consider. So there is that sense in which it's not, he's not just reporting Augustus. Mm. So I think you're quite right to say that, you know, he's not, he's not buying everything hook, line and sinker that Augustus is selling. And he's also encouraging that critical thinking from his readers as well. Yes. Being like, you know, we're in a situation where we all, we all kind of have to listen to this guy. Yeah. And there's some stories to be told about that. Yeah. But we also shouldn't forget that that's not the only source of evidence that we could rely upon for our understanding of any particular situation, including this one. And it's a good story. Uh (laughs) (laughs) No, certainly. Look, I just thought that was interesting perspective from Sailor because he actually goes through in this article, like, all these different instances so you can really like if you're interested in seeing learning more about that connection with the the supernatural storytelling and Livy and and those sorts of things you can actually go through and look at all these instances from the reigns of Romulus and Numa and Tullus and all those sorts of people from the regal period certainly though what I did like about this article was this idea that it is kind of a bit of a battle of auctoritas in terms of Livy is the historian in this situation. He's the one that's doing the research. Augustus is a politician. And at this point in time, essentially a ruler. (laughs) It is this interesting, like, well, who are you going to believe sort of thing? Some people have seen this passage as being kind of evidence, I suppose, of Livy being confused and maybe undermining his own authority, that he can't make sense of this, you know, or whatever. But I have to admit, I do see it more as being a way of dealing with the fact that A, source material is problematic, but also B, Augustus is now... Problematic. (laughs) ...inserted himself into this, this situation. So I agree. I don't think it actually makes Livy appear a worse historian or someone who we shouldn't trust. No, I think this is actually evidence that he's probably quite a robust historian. He's doing the best that he can with the evidence that he has. And he's also willing to provide that to the reader. Definitely. So that they can get a sense of just how complex this situation is. Yeah, absolutely. This doesn't make it any more clear about what actually happened. But that's... You were hoping for clarity? That's what good historians often do. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. But look, I just thought that was a fascinating passage, which I couldn't... I couldn't let it pass without delving into the complexities, particularly when it's got your favourite Roman of all time (laughs) being mentioned. My controversial fave. (laughs) (laughs) I love how you are a fan of Augustus and somehow you always come off as worse as me, who's a fan of Tiberius, who apparently is a pedophile. (laughs) I mean, it's in the source material. (laughs) (laughs) We all know it's a lie. Anyway. All right. Or do we? We do, I think. All right. So that's enough, I think, of 437 and the controversy over Cossus. Oh, Cossus. The Cossus. The Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's what we should call this episode. Uh. (laughs) This is how our episodes get named. (laughs) (laughs) Alright, so with that, I think I am ready now to pause and then move into 436 BCE. happening well i've got some great news and some terrible news the bad news or the terrible news is dionysius of halicarnassus my major source 
that I've been reading is still missing uh, uh, and will be missing for quite some time. Look, I got to admit, it's getting easier every time I hear it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sad. On the plus side, lots mm. of things happen in 436 and I know about them because I read other sources. Excellent. Well, shall we start with who our magistrates are for this yes. year? We have some consuls this year. We do. Mm. We do. Apparently, Lucius Papirius, uh, son of no one, uh, grandson of no one, Crassus, <laughs> who is a patrician. Yes. Um, and we'll become, we'll have roles in the future as well. Sure. And then we have Marcus Cornelius, son of Marcus, grandson of Lucius Magulanensis. Mm, also a patrician. I yeah, think. big yeah. surprise. Yeah. I think we've had that tongue twister of a name before. Yeah, look, I mean, it feels familiar, but then Latin often does. No, no, I mean, I just mean, I just mean given that we have a bit of his heritage there, I think, they, I think they've cropped up before. I think the most controversial character uh, in my list for 436 is Spurious Malius, returned from the dead. I know. I was really confused. I was like, am I rereading something that I've already read? So Spurious Malius, as far as we know, yes. uh, was murdered publicly yeah. in 439. This must be a relative. Thanks, Roman naming conventions. Maybe a relative, but yeah. I mean, some question marks this spurious malleus apparently i mean if not <laughs> back from the dead yeah. obviously on the family agenda because proposes a bill to confiscate the property of ahala yeah the assassin in question and accusing minucius the former prefect of the grain supply of falsely accusing spurious malleus of aiming towards kingship yeah, well, I mean, this is this is all going back to the the controversies that we really spoke about at the time. He was really trying to, so he's serving as Tribune of the Plebs, presumably, you know, kind of got in there because of <laughs> the similarity of his name. And he certainly is playing... What? Imagine if he's no relation. It's like, yeah. nah. <laughs> it's just a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, he just, he, he knows he's got this popular name and he believes that just through the power of the name, given that the other Spurious Malleus was only murdered a few years ago, that this power is going to allow him to cause all sorts of havoc for Manukius and Ahala. Now, Ahala, in case we don't remember, I'm pretty sure he's actually still in exile, right? I thought he'd run away. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, obviously, yeah, it obviously still like sticks the knife in to confiscate the property. Well, yeah, yeah, confiscating the property is not necessarily intrinsically connected to exile. Yeah. Um, and Ahala may have just fled for his own safety. So he might yeah. not have been uh, formally exiled because often a formal case of being exiled does result in confiscation of property as well. So there's a little, there's some confusing things about this story. Yeah, definitely. And so even though he's got this very popular name and seemingly he's doing things which I think people would kind of be on board with because everyone was super into Malleus and his grain at the time. This is true. I imagine he would have the people on side. But he doesn't. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Livy's at Livy. My sources don't go into that part. <laughs> no, well, this is the thing. Like, I think he's quite right in the sense that Servilius did kill someone who hadn't officially been found guilty of anything. So he's right about that. Manucius, the false accusation, well, I guess that's a bit he said, he said kind of situation. But anyway, what Livy tells me is that the people really weren't impressed by these charges. They seemingly are not strongly behind him in, his, in his accusations. Bit weird. Um, I do also have a bit of other detail about what's happening externally. Oh, yes. Yeah, so when we've got our consuls, obviously... The Roman armies apparently invaded the territory of Vey and the Thaliscans, who were their allies, lest we forget, captured some booty in the form of people and also animals. And the Romans didn't have any big set-piece battles at this point in time because they didn't really encounter their enemies much. And they didn't end up engaging in like a long siege or anything because... A plague arrives. Oh. Yeah. So that's oh. how things kind of play out in my account. They plague out in your account. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. So I've got a pestilence breaking out, which I think kind of 
not only does it detract from the military campaigns that are going on, which is obviously a continuation of the issues that have been going on with the whole Fidene colony controversy, but also I think probably distracts a little bit from what this Tribune of the Plebs is trying to achieve. Yeah, there's nothing to really put a dampener on political change than be like, I can't get out of bed and I'm possibly going to die. Yeah, and on top (laughs) of that, as often happens with pestilence, the people are worried and they get even more worried because prodigies start to appear. Oh, God. Yeah. Now, I like these particular prodigies because they're not like a woman gave birth to a snake with three heads, those kinds of things. It's this kind of prodigy where farm buildings are, quote, often thrown down by earthquakes, which I assume to mean disappeared into chasms that opened up in the ground, which is something we can totally see happening. Like, I mean, it's, in, it's believable that that happens. Well, certainly, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, Italy is on, is on a whole bunch of plates, isn't it? Um, that's why it's got a whole volcanic sort of range. Yeah. And so earthquakes... Hi, Hey, Etna. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Earthquakes should be part and parcel of what's going on. Yeah. So that kind of made sense to me. And as a result of these things happening, the Duumviri are instructed to offer up a supplication to the gods... Now, I believe this the is... A group a... of two men. Yeah, I believe... Who are they? Is... I'm... I'm about to oh, tell oh, you. Oh. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I believe this is a reference to... This is what happens when I don't have source material. <laughs> I yeah. I think this is a reference to the Duamviri Sacro... Oh, I can never say this word. Duamviri Sacrorum. <laughs> oh, yeah. The Sacrorum. Sacrorum. Yeah. Who are in charge of the Sibylline books at this point in time. And so they are, I think, basically consulting the Sibylline books. And this would be where the supplication that they're offering up to gods would come from. Mm. I think this is when I... Yeah, they'll find the answer to what kind of supplication they need to make. Yeah. Mm. So these are the Sibylline books as a bit of a refresher very important set of texts to the Romans, even though when they were originally offered them... The king at the time decided to burn quite a lot of them. <laughs> mm, yes, we've lost six of the nine. <laughs> yes, exactly. Nonetheless, the Romans always turn to them in times of trouble because they apparently offer much wisdom. I kind of like the yeah. fact that, the, you know, two thirds of the answers are missing. So there's a whole bunch of things that they're just never able to solve. Well, that's why your farmhouse disappeared into the earth. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, and that's really all I've got for 436. Do you have any oh, other details? 436. Welcome. Welcome. Okay. Oh, yeah. Things. It's mostly to do with the way that a hala is depicted in source material. Okay. Tell and me. the way that this whole situation with. The assassination of Malleus ties into broader issues with grain crises throughout Roman history, which we've touched on. We but have. I found some more scholars on this, so I'm interested in what they, where they're heading with this kind of Make stuff. Make it rain grain, Dr. G. <laughs> Ahala. Well, first of all, Spurius mm-hmm. Malleus is suspected, and this is around about 439, yeah. of the affectatio regni, the Ambition to rule as king. Well, yeah, that's why they kill him. Yeah, that's why they kill him, <laughs> yeah. apparently. That's that's their bag. Yes. But when this new spurious Malleus <laughs> uh, comes in as tribune of the plebs, yeah. he is accusing uh, Manukius and Ahala, not Manukius, sorry, just Ahala, of being a cadres civis indemnati, mm. uh, an unlawful murderer. Yes. So going outside of the bounds of what is possible. So this idea of reinforcing the fact that maybe Ahala wasn't really master of the horse or maybe wasn't really supposed to engage in this level of violence. Which is interesting because we talked about the fact that we believe that maybe he was given like this tacit go ahead, like wink, wink from the Senate. Yeah. And they thought that maybe they'd get away with it, but he Mm. wasn't given an official position. No. They just asked for a volunteer and Ahala was the kind of crazy violent kid who put up his hand was like, I'll murder somebody in broad daylight. Hells yeah. Well, Um, I mean, he was trying to be a king. I mean, mm, we know how the Romans feel about kings. And he does have (laughs) to leave Rome as a result of this. Yes. But the elites see this as an enduring story Mm. of patrician injustice because what Ahala does is he saves the state from somebody who was trying to rise up to be a king. Definitely. Oh, well, Livy definitely drives home this idea of like liberty being preserved. I call crap. (laughs) (laughs) And Livy is not the only one who buys into that kind of version interpretation. Cicero 
refers to Ahala in a couple of his texts, Ooh. always in a positive fashion. Interesting. In the sense that he feels that there's been an injustice done. And he does categorize Ahala in with a whole bunch of other figures who he also sees as being unjustly treated and having to go into exile in a way that is undeserved. Interesting. So it's like, <laughs> I've done just, something controversial. I'm putting, had a prediction. I'm putting a prediction out there, okay? I'm waging that some of these people also came up against some uppity tribunes of the plebs. You'd be so right. <laughs> do I know Rome or do I know Rome? <laughs> they see some parallels. Yeah. So Cicero in the De Republica, yeah. and this is book one, section six for people who are keen, puts Alhala in the same category as somebody called Camillus, mm-hmm. who we're going to encounter very soon. I was going to say, yeah. A guy called Nazica. Ooh, I remember him well. <laughs> uh, Lanus. Yeah. Uh, Opimius. Mm-hmm. Metellus. Uh-huh. And Gaius Marius. Oh. Another name that people might just recognize. Yes. Camillus is likely to be Marcus Furious Camillus, who we are going to... We're going to... Yeah. <laughs> I'm so furious. Yeah. Uh, coming up soon in yes. a Roman history podcast near you. Um, <laughs> watch great, out. Yeah. And so I won't say too much of them because I don't want to ruin Camillus' no, no, story. Nasica uh, is possibly a reference to Publius Cornelius Scipio Nasica Serapio. Yes. Which uh, I'm sure, you know, sounds very familiar to everybody. Um, <laughs> was consul in 138 BCE. So by the time we get there, I'm sure I will have forgotten that I've mentioned him at all. But was famously a political opponent of Tiberius Gracchus. Mm, one of the most troublesome tribunes of the plebs to have ever lived, if not the number one. <laughs> the number one. If he's number two, it's to his brother. And <laughs> Nausicaa gets himself into trouble because he's the one that calls for the salvation of the state sort of protest leading the opposition against Tiberius Gracchus, which causes a whole commotion where I think it's the infamous roof tile incident uh, <laughs> where Tiberius, uh, yeah. Tiberius Gracchus gets conked in the head in, in the sort of public violence that erupts and dies. Um, can, I just, can I just quickly say the reason why that name, which is such a mouthful, is so familiar to me, it's because that was the guy that I had to research for my assignment for Tom Hillard. <laughs> so every, oh, yeah. every year, Tom Hillard at Macquarie University would give his students in his introductory Rome course a person to go and find like all the source material that you possibly could, like everything you could find. It was a prosperographical... <laughs> A postrepographical <laughs> study. And so he was the guy that I had to chase up that year. Oh, so, this guy. Yeah. He starts the commotion against Tiberius Gracchus. Exactly. Accidentally killed. Yep. So um, I, I will always remember the name Nassica. <laughs> and he has to go into exile, essentially. Yeah. Um, ultimately, like, he leaves to just escape the displeasure of the people. Yeah. This doesn't ruin his career. And maybe sounds familiar as a patriarchal trope overall. You do something bad and you kind of have to leave, but your career keeps going anyway somehow. Because um, he ends up, you know, leading a legation in Asia and then dying in Pergamon. Tough times. Mm. Then we have Lanus, mm. who is potentially Gaius Popilius Lanus, uh-huh. who, you know, does some things, <laughs> gets himself into trouble. He is condemned in Rome for entering into a treaty that allows the army to withdraw. And this is seen as like, just super problematic. Right, okay. <laughs> they're, like, they're like, no, you should keep fighting. And it's like, well, no, we're out of here. Um, so anyway, something about that political situation is controversial from a Roman perspective and he has to go. Okay. Cicero sees it as unjust. Right, fair enough. Opimius, mm. Lucius Opimius. I feel like this name is familiar as well. Yeah, it's mm. bound to be. Yeah. In 121 BCE, mm. he was the consul who secured the Senatus Consultum Ultimum against Gaius Gracchus. Ah, okay. That's why it sounds So familiar. we haven't encountered Senatus Consultum Ultimum uh, ultima, I suppose, <laughs> as a plural, um, yet in this podcast because it's a political mechanism that doesn't come into play for a long time. Mm. Um, so I'm not going to get into the details of it here. Sure. But basically what this does is it puts Epimius in a similar position, ultimately, to right. Nassica, uh, because there precedes much violence. Yes, and very violent. <laughs> against uh, uh, Gaius Gracchus, who's effectively outlawed, and this means that he ultimately gets 
prosecuted later on by opponents and he also um, has to leave Rome. So Opimius, it doesn't work out. Yeah. <laughs> despite <laughs> didn't work out for Gaius Gracchus much either, but hey. It doesn't work yeah. out for the Gracchi and it doesn't no. work out for the people who oppose them either. No. And he also dies in exile. Yeah. And then we have Metellus. Mm-hmm. There's lots of options for who this Metellus could be because the Metelli are often getting themselves into trouble and yeah. ending up exiled. Yeah. So apologies in advance. <laughs> this might not be the Metellus. Yeah. But we have Quintus Caecilius Metellus Pius Scipio. Right. Born around 95 mm-hmm. BCE. And he is one of the people that delivers anonymous letters to Cicero in 63 that warns of Catiline's assassination plans. Ah. So he's considered to be a really significant political figure. Yeah. But he then later on gets embroiled in a whole bunch of bribery Uh, lawsuits so well this is something that happens in the late republic a lot Mm -hmm. um and the crime of bribery is really punished in the law courts and people are using it against each other all the time to try and get rid of their opponents and metellus falls prey to some of that how true or not it might have been we might get to but anyway he ends up in exile right so i mean the main thread here is people ending up in exile (laughs) (laughs) gaius marius i don't know does he end up in exile but i mean he is from Cicero's account, dealt with unjustly. Well, I mean, I guess there's a, that whole period of Marius's career where he's dealing with some pretty serious political rivals and they both kind of go through periods where one's on the up and up and the other one falls down and the other one's on the up and up and the other one falls down. Well, we won't go into all the detail, but yeah, he has some yeah, he has some bad times and some good times. He has some bad times yeah. and good times. Yeah. And so Cicero is pretty uh, pro an elite position. So even though he is a, shocked. He's a novice homo, as it were, a new man in Rome, <laughs> he's really bought into the like the Roman sort of ideology. Yes. And you, unsurprising, perhaps. Yeah. And he sees Ahala as a classic example, going right. right back to the early period of somebody who is trying to save the state and is unjustly dealt with. Mm. So, I think he's going to have some periods of his life where he feels that he is unjustly dealt with too. <laughs> and so, and this sort of leads into the scholarship around this. Mm. And there are really clear connections that you can see that Cicero is already building mm. um, to the Gracchi, for instance, and the parallels between the grain crisis that seems to be happening in the 430s BCE and the grain crisis that's happening in like the 130s BCE. And Which is where the Gracchi come into it as tribunes of the plebs. It yeah. is indeed. Yeah. And so Spurius Melius' story doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Right. But it takes on even more significance. Yeah. And more sense-making is tried to be made of it, as it were, in light of the events Yes. of the late second century. Oh, for sure. And so this means that the way that our sources are dealing with it, and this is kind of it's a real shame that I don't have Dionysius of Halicarnassus right now because I would love a Greek's perspective on this. <laughs> and what's going on with the Greeks? We've got this sense that this story has been reworked and adapted as as needful in order to push home particular political perspectives that are coming from the elite. Oh, I have no doubt. When, when there's a grain crisis involved, I'm pretty sure that it's going to have something to do with the Gracchi. Four, four, sources, four sources that are written later, which most of our sources are. And it's problematic as well because of this idea of the emergency dictatorship element of it. Okay. And it's like the legitimacy of what Ahala has done and oh, yeah. and potentially what that means for Rome. Well, as you said, really, I think starting in around that time period with the whole Malleus affair, we really are entering into an age of dictators where it's just like dictators are like crawling out of the woodwork. <laughs> yeah, it's only yeah. going to get more chaotic. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's pretty clear that there's great instability in Rome's political system. Yes. And we have the potential for certain private citizens of the patrician class given leeway to engage in casual, open murder. (laughs) (laughs) Not words you often hear. Just out and about. Yeah, yeah. And for them to not necessarily be wholly punished for it. It's not like Ahala is ever brought into a law court to answer for this. Yeah. He's allowed to run away and live. And the attempt to confiscate his property 
we're not sure how that really ends. Yeah. Well, this is exactly it. I think it's because the pestilence really distracts everybody because it seems to be very serious. But I must admit, I do find these episodes of Roman history particularly interesting, much more interesting than I used to, because I often do wonder, we know that no matter what we do about the current environmental crisis, that we are going to have some tough times ahead of us, even if we manage to avert the level of warming, which would be like a tipping point where we really can't come back. It's just going to get hotter. If we manage to avert that, we've still created enough issues for ourselves with the current level of warming and also all the other crises that are associated with that, like you know, pollution and overpopulation and all that kind of stuff, that we know that there are going to be tough times ahead regardless of what we do, which is why it's really smart to do something about not getting over that tipping point. But that's another issue. But one of the things I think that will be an issue is food security. Uh, and certainly for a lot of people in the world, unfortunately, food insecurity is their day-to-day existence. But for a lot of people in the developed world, I mean, I can safely say I am privileged enough that I have never gone hungry, not for a single meal in my life. you know. And so I can only imagine the kind of political instability and the kind of political reaction to populations when they're hungry, when they're starving. And so it kind of, I'm always interested in these sorts of events because I'm just like, I don't know what our future will hold. As, as I've often said on this podcast, we have this illusion of plenty when we go into supermarkets and we see all this food, but we also have to keep in mind that we're constantly overshooting the resources that this planet can produce for the amount of people that are on it. And that there may be times when we run short of certain things. In fact, I, I'm only saying maybe because I don't want to sound like a panicky kind of thing, but I would almost wager there definitely will be times of Oh, food. I think there definitely yeah. will be. And I think you're quite right to, to tie what we're seeing in these histories to what is happening now. And even just as a small example, in Australia recently, because we had so much rain, which was so unseasonable, mm. it did lead to problematic harvests yep. of certain things like it's going to sound ridiculous, lettuce and cabbage. Yeah. <laughs> and you couldn't get a cabbage for less than $15 at some point. And you're like, you know what? I don't need to eat cabbage. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just not. And as long as those sort of uh, conditions continue to be unstable in terms of like Australia is known as a very dry continent. Yes. But we have been swamped with rain yeah. on the back of, and this has been what, three years running of like way, way, way too much rain yeah. for what this land can handle. Yeah versus what happened previous to that, which was devastating hot bushfires. And drought. And yeah. drought. Yeah. And we're, we're going through this, we're seeing the cycles of becoming more unstable. And Rome is facing similar consequences, I think, but they're living in a more stable climate. Yes. But the instabilities that are inherent in food supply mm-hmm. have only been solved very recently in human history. Absolutely. And arguably not everywhere and not in a sustainable way at all. No, and that's what I think it's important to remember in terms of when we look at these episodes from history, there's a temptation to be like, how quaint, (laughs) they're starving and they're therefore fighting amongst themselves. But it actually is something that people who are involved in looking at the implications of climate change and environmental crisis are looking at because humans actually, we we do get more temperamental when when we're hungry. There's there's a lot of truth in that Snickers commercial. <laughs> and so, yeah, you know, in all seriousness, it is one of those things where, yeah, people people are more testy. Mm. And obviously governments responding to these sorts of crises, I mean, it's a tough gig. And I think that also, you know, they tend to make more extreme decisions because it's a it's a pressing issue. Like we need food and we need clean water. And that is why I get so frustrated when people don't pay attention to the issues that our environment is facing. Because like we've seen with Malleus, one of the things that he does is that when when grain is in short supply in his area, he sends out to surrounding areas to try and secure the grain. And that's how they come out of the crisis. But if every part of the world is increasingly going through these crises in our own time, who are you going to call? Yeah. Like, who are you going to turn to? If we, if we are all increasingly going through this, it just gets more and more expensive and more and more ludicrous that we're reacting to problems rather than trying to be proactive and stop 
the crises from happening or making them less severe. It's just insane. And I know there are a lot of people out there who are doing amazing things and props to you, but I just thought I have to highlight this issue because as you say, living in the country that we do, where we're obviously going to be vulnerable to these sorts of extremes, the more that they become, you know, pulls more and more pulls apart. It's just something that it's good to pay attention to, I think. Mm, and on that note, I think I think we're done. I, I think, think this is the, I think we're into the wrap up Solve section now. Global problems. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Dr. G, that means if we're wrapping up this episode, it is time for the partial pick. So this is the part of the podcast where we see how Rome has traveled in the last couple of years. Well, I suppose a year and a bit. And we rate them out of five categories. In each category, there are 10 golden eagles up for grabs. That makes for a total of 50. Mm. All right. Our first category is military clout. Well, okay, there is some mention of the Romans, you know, winning some stuff, some bootay, you know, getting that tasty goat meat, I guess, or maybe sheep. <laughs> well, well, how much weight are we giving to the things in 437? No, no, that's in 436 in my oh, That is in 436. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. So we're measuring 436. Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah, okay. the 437, it's just like that recap controversy stuff. We can leave that behind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Military clout. Yeah, yeah. Look, I've got nothing on this year for that. So <laughs> well, uh, whatever okay. score you provide it is the one I will accept. <laughs> look, it's very minimal detail. There's no big conflict with the enemy. It's literally just like raiding. <laughs> They're, well, like, they're running across the border. They're taking some stuff. Sounds like a one. It, I, I think it's going to be a little bit more than that. <laughs> I would maybe say like a four or a five maybe. Wow. that's a, uh, Well, I mean, they, they win. Like maybe a four. Let's go <laughs> <They> four. Okay, <laughs> look, they got some slaves and they got some flocks. We might not morally agree with slavery, but for them, that's a win. No, <laughs> nor stealing of sheep. Um, four it is. All right. Diplomacy. No. (laughs) (laughs) I see. Uh, Now I understand how you won all of the stuff. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Expansion? Mm, I think they're more just... I think they're just going across and they're taking some stuff home. Weirtuous. Not really, no. Yeah. Uh, Well, I suppose Well, our second spurious Malleus... Uh, trying to do the good word for his relative potentially or himself if he's indeed come back from the dead <laughs> to hold the tribunal. <laughs> he's giving it a good crack, but I don't think what you could call his very half-hearted att- oh, not, not. I don't know that it's half-hearted. It's not half-hearted. I mean, not particularly gets... well-received efforts <laughs> to pass a law. I don't know if you can class that as... As weird to us. No. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'll give him snaps, but that's about it. <laughs> uh, all right. No weird to us. And the citizen score. Jesus. It's a, it's a plague, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, wow. it's not great. I mean, they do get the extra sheep before uh, True. the plague There are hits. some slaves on the market and some goats or something. I, 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 they just say flocks. I'm presuming goats. But mm. yeah, so... Delicious goats. Well, yeah, I think it's typical of that region. But anyway, we've got a little bit of meat and slavery <laughs> coming their way before... Before sickness. <laughs> a serious one. Like, serious enough for them to turn to the Sibylline book. So yeah, they're like, this is bad. A one, I think. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I think a one. Because who wins with slavery? No, no one. one. No yeah. one. Which means that, Dr. G, our total, which I can count on <laughs> one hand, is five <laughs> golden eagles for Rome. How the mighty have fallen. Because last episode, it was actually a pretty decent score. Yeah, well, they did amazing things on the battlefield last time. Yeah. Uh, five. Uh, that is... is a battlefield. <laughs> it certainly is. And one in which, in terms of points, Rome is currently losing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So on that uh, rather depressing note, I will bid you adieu, Dr. G. Fare you well. Yeah, but we'll promise more exciting things to come. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Partial Historians. We'd like to give a special shout out today to some of our latest Patreons, Azra, Lydia, Amanda and Dendrio. You too can support our show and help us to produce more fascinating content about the ancient world by becoming a Patreon. In return, you receive exclusive early access to our special episodes and now you get to see us in some of our recording sessions. 
There are other ways that you can support our show. We have a Ko-fi account, or you can just spread the word by buying and wearing some of our merchandise, or support our collaboration with the talented Bridget Clark, who has been helping us to produce some artwork on Gumroad. Until next time, we are yours in ancient Rome.